Okay, as we are continuing on the chronological life of Jesus, we are going to read today in John, Gospel according to John, chapter 5. This is where it picks up in the chronology of his life. Uh, so we've been going through Luke, and now we're looking in different Gospels as we, as we go through different, different situations in, in Jesus' life. And uh, uh, in, in John chapter 5, at verse 1, this is now mentions the Passover. It talks about the feast. So whenever the feast was mentioned, if there was no specificity to the feast, it was always a reference to the Passover. There are, so there are four times, three specifically, where it says Passover feast, and a fourth time in this occasion in the, book of, in the Gospel according to John where it mentions the Passover feast. We have the recorded life of Jesus, his ministry, over four Passovers. His ministry was three years and a little bit, three years and maybe a month, three years and a small amount. We picked up the, the ministry of Jesus where he was, remember, at the, the wedding feast at the Cana of Galilee, where he did his first public sign. And then he went to Jerusalem for the, the first Passover of his, his ministry. And so there were there are four Passovers three years, because there's the first Passover, which came immediately after the, the Cana feast, the Cana wedding, and, and then one year and where we, where we are today, this is the second Passover now, so there's been one year, from the second to the third Passover is, a, is the second year, from the third Passover to the fourth Passover is the third year. So three years are covered, three years in just a little bit, over a, over a span of four Passovers, because he dies on that fourth Passover. Does everybody understand that? You have four Passovers, but three years span over those four Passovers. And, and uh, three years in just a little bit. So this is now, we're picking up the second year of Jesus' life. The Gospel according to John primarily deals with the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem. There are about four passages, four chapters, that do speak about the Galilean ministry. Jesus' ministry in Galilee was about 18 to 20 months. Uh, uh, he's still up in the Galilee working, but he comes down now for the Passover feast like Jews were supposed to do to come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Then he'll return back to Galilee. Uh, so this is now the second Passover. We've now completed just about one year of Jesus' ministry in the chronological life of Jesus. So let's pick it up here. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind and lame and, and withered. Uh, and now I'm going to read a portion. It's the second half of verse 3 and all of verse, verse 4. Many of you have used the New International Version and it leaves out the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 and it goes from verse 3 directly to verse 5. You may notice that. So, so the second half of verse 3 says this, Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now picking up at verse 5. And there was a man there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, 
Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was on the Sabbath day. So Jesus is now in Jerusalem. You see this description by John. Uh, uh, the, the, this is not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in prison. This is the disciple John. This is uh, one, one of uh, uh, Jesus' disciples. He's writing this. And he writes this deep description about, he says, There is in Jerusalem, in verse 2, by the sheep gate, a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, which has five porticos. You will see that John writes in great detail about the geography of Jerusalem. John was from Jerusalem. He was familiar to the high priest, as we'll see near the end of Jesus' life. This is why he was able to get Peter in to see uh, uh, from a distance this trial that Jesus was going through. And it says that John's family was familiar to the high priest's family. So he is from Jerusalem. He writes a lot of detail about the city of Jerusalem. This is the amazing thing about the scriptures. It gives detail, detail, detail about things. If this were written, you know, a thousand years after the event, you would never have this type of detail because Jerusalem had all been destroyed and everybody was gone. How would they have known this level of detail? Again and again, you have small towns listed. You go, they go, they dig there, they find these small towns. They find this level of detail where you can go and you can see these pools and the porticos that are there. And it, so it says that, that uh, uh, Jesus went, it was the Feast of the Jews in verse 1. It describes the, the, the pool which was there. And in verse 3, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And why does the NIV leave out the last half of verse 3 and all of verse 4? It's because that little snippet is not in some of the earlier manuscripts. So we don't have a whole manuscript of the New Testament. We have pieces that have been pieced together. That piece, that, that verse and a half, is not in some of the earliest of manuscripts. So my, my Bible has brackets around it and a little note that, that talks about this. Other Bibles will just say it's not in the earliest of manuscripts, so we don't want to put it there. It doesn't change theology at all. But what it does is, if this were, if this has been a scribal insertion that came later, all it's doing is describing a little bit so that we can understand in verse 7 when the man says, well, uh, uh, I want to try to get in the water, but when the waters are stirred up, it's hard for me to get in there, and so somebody jumps on ahead of me. So this, this insertion, whether it was by John or it came later, we don't know. But it's there, and it describes... Why Jesus, why the man came with this answer? Because it says, an angel of the Lord, it says, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. So this was, um, th this is what it says, and, and uh, you could see why there would be so many people by this pool. And there were many people. So I want you to think about this. There were many people in these porticos. And it wasn't just this one man. It says there were sick, blind, lame, and withered. They were waiting for the moving of the waters. And Jesus just goes up to one man. He didn't heal everybody in this place. He healed one person in this whole place. Why did he leave all the others unhealed? I don't know. I'm not God. I don't know why God heals some people and other people He doesn't heal. 
I don't know. I mean, a good friend of ours, just, just his funeral was yesterday. He was in his, his early 20s. I think he was like 23. He died of cancer. He's been married a little over a year. Died of cancer. And so he's struggling with cancer for the last couple of years. Why? You know, he loved the Lord. I don't know. Have I, did I pray for him? Yeah, I went over his house, laid hands on him and prayed. I don't know why God heals some and others he does not. If you know, let me know. Because I'd like to know. But God is God, and I'm not God, and Jesus even. You know, there were times that multitudes would come and it says He would heal them all. Whereas here's an instant where there were were plenty of people around, and He only singles out one person. Why? I don't know. And so He goes up to this man. It says in verse 5, The man had been ill for 38 years. Ill for 38 years. How many of you have been ill for 38 years, ever? I mean, maybe for 38 minutes, maybe 38 hours, but 38 years. I mean, this is a long time to be ill. So how old is this man? We don't know, but he's been ill for 38 years. And it says, Jesus went there and saw, knowing that he had been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, that's an interesting question. Do you wish to get well? It was Jesus just wasting his words. Well, duh! (laughs) Well, maybe not. Do you wish to get well? Did you know there are some people, and I have known some people like this, that don't wish to get well. They like the attention they get in being ill. And you keep talking, you know, if you do this, you're going to get better. They don't want to get better. They love the attention that they get in being ill. You think, this is really odd. Yes, it is odd behavior. So not everybody is like this. But once in a while, you will find people like this. So Jesus said to him, do you wish to get well? So the man doesn't say, well, duh, of course. The man says something that is not a yes nor a no, but it's implied yes based on what he says, based on that text that it talks about the stirring up of the water. We wouldn't understand his response had it not been for that little bit of text of the stirring up of the water, because it says in verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. So, obviously, the man's response is, Yes, I want to get well. But he thought that Jesus is saying, if you want to get well, why aren't you stepping into the water when it gets stirred up? He says, I'm trying, but I can't move fast enough. I need someone to help me because every time I try, someone steps in before me. Now, it doesn't say that the man was paralyzed. It says that he was ill. You can be very ill and it's very slow, slow moving. You may not be paralyzed, but, but uh, it can be very slow moving. You know, think about when you have the flu. <laughs> You know, think about how hard it is to get up out of bed. I mean, this man was just ill enough. It was, took him a long time to get up. And, and uh, uh, so by his response, we know that, yes, he wants to get well. It's an interesting question. Do you want to get well? The man says yes, in the way that he responded. And Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Okay, so John picks it out. He says it it happened to be the Sabbath day. Because this is where the controversy is. There's no problem with Jesus healing. 
It's that when he heals on the Sabbath day, because remember, the 1,500 regulations that went around the Sabbath day, Jesus would have nothing to do with the Mishnaic-type law. He obeyed strictly the 613 commandments of Moses, and now there were Mishnaic laws. One of the Mishnaic laws is you could not carry anything from a private place to a public place, or from a public place to a private place. This man is taking him taking his pallet from this portico, a private place, through the streets, a public place. This was illegal according to man-made Sabbath regulations, which they said were derived from the oral law of Moses. Moses had the written law. They will say that all of their laws are derived from oral laws passed down by Moses. Jesus would have nothing to do with that. This is where the conflict was between Jesus and the Pharisees. It was, they felt, if Jesus really were a great prophet and the Messiah, he would come and he would substantiate their feelings about religion. This is a common thing that we go through too, or that I go through. And that, that is this feeling that my group, my church, my little Bible study group, we do it right. We do it right. If Jesus were here, he would come and he'd be part of our group. For sure. You know, when people do it different than our group, they couldn't be right. You know, sometimes you see this in young people when they get saved in a certain community of faith. They're so excited about that, they think, this must be it. This must be God's way. And I'm telling you, God has a very broad tent. You go to other parts of the world and people will be very excited about the Lord But the way they worship is different. The issues that concern them deeply are different. The things that we think about a lot, they don't even consider at all. And you would think, well, you you know, if you were really a fervent Christian, this would occupy your mind a lot. Give you an example. Um, In my world of Joe Scientist Christian, it is, Uh, What did God mean by in six days he created the heavens and the earth? Does does that mean that the the little hand on, on, on my watch, it goes around twice, that's a day? So, so, is that what a day means in scripture? And, and so, was the earth created in six 24 hour days or in six periods of time? So, many people have very strong views on this but not in other countries. So, for example, I was once speaking to my son-in-law, who's a Messianic Jew, a Jew who loves Jesus, born and raised in Israel. And I asked him his opinion on this, and he was shocked that people would even think about this. That it was not even an issue that he thought about. Whereas there are people in our world, in this country, that will die over this point. That, that, that want to say you're a false prophet if you don't believe the way they believe on this point. I'll give you another example. Um, uh, we were in, um, we lived in, in Indiana when we first got married. So we got married in New York. She and I moved to Indiana. And um, there was this, this, this great preacher come to town, David Wilkerson. Anybody ever heard of David Wilkerson? Okay, so all the older folks are raising their hand and Caleb because... <laughs> but David Wilkerson wrote The Cross and the Switchblade. Here is a man who brought the gospel into New York City, into the gangs. And David Wilkerson comes from, from a, an expression that 
that uh, uh, is more charismatic or Pentecostal. That's his expression. So this was in the Assemblies of God Church. David Wilkerson was coming to speak. And my wife wanted to go see David Wilkerson because in our generation, David Wilkerson was the man. I mean, he was so impressive that fearlessly would take the gospel into the gangs of New York City and men would fall on their knees and get saved. Powerful, powerful ministry. And so here he was, was going to be speaking in the church. And I didn't really like the way that he was teaching in the church. And I'll give you an example. Like he'd say, uh, somebody here has a tr- trouble with their left knee. And God is touching you right now. God is healing you. And in my analytical mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, you've got 4,000 people here. Right? That's 4,000 left knees. One of them is going to be hurting, for sure. So the chances of this, and do you know what I mean? It just started bothering me a little bit. And he was doing this, and people were coming up and just, you know, yeah, that's me. And, you know, it feels much better now. So I I really wasn't enjoying this. And then, and we were sitting kind of in the back. And then the next day of, of, of this event, my wife wanted to go back again. And here I was trying to be a good husband, and we were newly married, and I really didn't want to go to this, but... She didn't drive at the time, and so I took, you know, we went there, and she wanted to go early, because this was a huge Assemblies of God church, and we were sitting way in the back last time, and she wanted to be right up front, so we went like an hour early, and we sat right in the front, and I had my Bible with me, my Bible was in my hand, and, and uh, I wasn't enjoying this at all, but for my wife, I was going to do this. Have you ever done that, Leo? Just done something for your wife. Okay, so, so I was going to do this for my wife. And then, you know, this guy started going at it again, and, and he stopped. And mind you, I said nothing. He stopped. He says, you know, there's a problem in the church today. The problem in the church today is that people think that their little group does it the right way, and when other people don't do it the way their little group does it, that it's got to be wrong. And he just looked right at me. He says, and I think they're Christians, at least I think they are, I don't know if they are, but I think they are because they carry their Bible under their arm, and I was holding my Bible, and I just wanted to go under my seat. I never said a word, and this man read my mind, and people are thinking the problem in the church today, the church at large, and I knew the man was speaking about the church at small, that small guy right there. I wanted to get under the chair and never come out. And I thought, I will never think, even think this way about a man of God. Don't even think it. I didn't, it wasn't a, a problem with expression. I didn't even want to think it. And God really got a hold of my heart. That he has a very broad tent. People do things different ways. There are different ways of, of healing. There are different ways of, of worshipping. Different expressions. And one of the beautiful things is that you can go around the world. And just this past summer, I was asked to speak in a church in Israel. And just before I was going to get up and speak, I was sitting next to this older woman. And and the woman turned to me. She said, I'm from the United States as well. I said, oh, really? She said, where are you from? I said, well, originally I'm from New York City. She said, oh, I'm from New York City. I said, oh, really? And she says, yes, I got saved there. I was with a ministry with a man named David Wilkerson. I said, David Wilkerson? (laughs) I said, you're wonderful. I have nothing to say about that man, that ministry. 
and, and uh, you know, she started, I said, tell me, tell me a little bit about the ministry. And she talked about how God was pouring out in New York City and so many people were getting saved at that time. And, and you know, God has this broad tent and this broad expression. And this is what he did. So Jesus, Jesus is working and he's moving and he's doing things in ways that these people are not familiar, of, not familiar with. This is why we have to get back to the Word of God and say, are what the, it, it, is the thing that troubles us about their expression, is it fundamentally wrong by the Scriptures or is it just because of my own presuppositions on, on what Christians, good Christians ought to be and do? You see what I mean? Let's take the Word of God as our basis because the Word of God tells us that we are to make judgments according to the Word of God. But not by, oh, this is just the way my little group does it. Okay, so let's continue on. John chapter, chapter 5, verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, who ma- he, answered them he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. Verse 12, John 5, 12. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there, while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse, may, worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so... This Jesus slips away. The man gets healed, picks up his pallet and walks out. Jesus slips away. And while everybody is amazed, because remember, this man has been in his sickness 38 years. Everybody in that place knew him. You know, he was a fixture there. And, and uh, so he slips away and he's carrying his pallet. And they come to him. These are the religious police. And, you know, we can sometimes be the religious police. And, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that. He says, well, the guy who healed me told me to just take it. The guy, they said, who is it who healed you? He says, I don't know. So you see, at this time, in Jesus' ministry, there was no requirement of faith. None whatsoever. He just said, do you want to get well? The guy says, yeah, by saying, I wish I could get in that pool. Boom, he's well. No requirement of faith. No requirement on believing Jesus is the Messiah. He didn't even know who the man was. Later, we're going to see there becomes a requirement of faith. At this point in the ministry, no requirement of faith. Sometimes people had faith. Sometimes they had none. He didn't even know who Jesus was. Faith in what? Faith in what? There was nothing to have faith in. He says, just pick up your pallet and go home. So the man says, I don't know who it is who healed me. And then where does the, the man end up? In verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. So something had gotten hold of this man's heart. He goes to the temple of all places. You know, you'd think he'd go to the bar. He'd go, you know, he'd go to the hookah bar or whatever they had in those days. You know, you know he'd go to... No, he goes to the temple. Something happened in his heart. There's an indication there. For them, you know, for us, we can go to our room and talk to the Lord. Not for Jews. They had to go to the temple. That's where God was. So he went to the temple where God was. 
And he's probably thanking God. Something is stirring in his heart. And Jesus meets him then. And Jesus said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So you see that he all of a sudden sees this guy who just had healed him. And he says, you've become well. Don't sin anymore. He says, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Do not sin anymore. Well, where's the sin? He's sitting in the temple. You think he's in the temple sitting? Do not sin anymore. The implication is that your sin got you where you are. Not that all sickness is a cause of sin. In fact, Jesus even said that. He, they meet a, a young man born blind, and, and the disciples say to him, Who, whose sin is responsible for this man being born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus said, neither. It was for the glory of God. Sometimes people get sick just because they get sick. It has nothing to do with sin. So we can't look at somebody and say, Oh, your sin has made you sick. You can't do that. We have no idea why they're sick. Sometimes it's for the glory of God. Sometimes God loves them so much He wants to take them home. To have, have them with Him. Sometimes it's to the glory of God. God's going to heal them. But in this case, He says, don't sin anymore. Lest something worse befall you. Worse than 38 years in sickness? But this is what He says. Before we, we, we capitalize on that thought, let's just finish this up. So the man goes away, tells the Jews that it was Jesus, and it says in verse 16, for this reason the Jews were persecuting him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is what really bothered them, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It has nothing to do with the fact that they felt the Messiah should liberate them from Rome, and Jesus wasn't doing that. Had they accepted him, he would have done it. No, it's because they were not substantiating what they held dear and sacrosanct. And that was their Mishnaic law. Because they were not part of his group, he was following the scriptures, and not all these man-made constructs of what should be done. That's what was causing them to persecute him. How were they persecuting him? Well, you, you can say, you, you, you know, today, in our generation, persecution is, you wear a shirt that says, uh, Navigators, or IV, and somebody says to you, I don't like that shirt. <gasps> I'm, I'm hurt. I'm persecuted. It's so pers- I'm just so persecuted in college. Oh, so hard. That is not persecution. That is childishness. So get over it. Alright? Persecution is different. It says in the next verse, they were trying to kill him. That's persecution. Alright? So if somebody tries to kill you for wearing the navigator's shirt, that's persecution. Alright? But not, not just for saying something that hurts your feelings. So... Then Jesus' reply to them is, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. God works on the Sabbath, and I myself am working. My Father is working on the Sabbath. Now, there are some cults that say Jesus was the Son of God, but He wasn't God Himself. He wasn't God come in the flesh. Well, it says right here, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. In Gentile reckoning, to call someone your Father does not make you equal with that one. But in Jewish reckoning, it makes you equal with that one. So remember, we have have a mindset that's a Western mindset. In that culture... If someone just says, my father is working, 
and referring to God in a Jewish context as that is my Father. He is one with God. It is oneness with God. And we know that, it says, because He made Himself equal with God by calling God His Father. So in our mind, for someone to say, that is my Father, does not equate with equalness. In their mind, it certainly did, and Jesus knew it. And it says, therefore they were all the more wanting to kill Him because He made Himself equal with God. Because so when He says, my Father... In that Jewish context, that to them was saying he is making himself equal with God, so much so that they wanted to kill him. Remember, our mindset is configured based on Western mindset. But in that culture, the Son is equivalent to the Father. What you do to the Son, you have done to the Father. That is the case in that, in, in, in that society. But let's look at this thought again. He says in verse 14, Behold... You have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Sin will cause problems in your life. It will cause problems in your life. I don't care how saved you are. Sin will cause problems in your life. You want to know what can start to move you away from God? I will tell you. Very simple answer. Sin. Sin will start to move you away from God. And you hold on to that sin and it will move you away from God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We talk about this each week when we take the Lord's Supper. But I want to show you what it says here in the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? Look what he says. Remember, this is the epistles. This is where we get our instruction. Paul is saying, when you meet together, isn't it to take the Lord's Supper? You know, we think it's, you know, it's to worship. You know, it's to hear God's Word. He says, you meet together, is it not for the Lord's Supper? Do you see why I want to have the Lord's Supper every week when we meet together? He said, don't you meet together for the Lord's Supper? And you say, okay, well, the Lord's Supper was the fellowship meal. No, it had nothing to do with the fellowship meal. It may have been associated with it, but it was not the fellowship meal. Because he says, if you're hungry, you eat at home. That would be like my, like my saying, come on over to my house for lunch, but be sure you stop at Wendy's on the way and fill up. Huh? Well, the lunch then is for something more than filling your belly. The Lord's Supper is not for filling your belly. It is something very different. Because he says in verse in, in, in verse 21. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So, not, so um, uh, And then if we pick up on that same thought in verse 33. So then, brethren... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so, so that you will not come together for judgment. For the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So in other words, this is something other than the Lord's Supper was not just a fellowship meal where you get filled up. He says, if that's your problem, eat at home. The Lord's Supper is something different. So what is the Lord's Supper? So then he goes into it in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. So Paul is speaking not based on hearing accounts from the disciples what happened in the other room. Remember, when Paul got saved, he was taught directly from Jesus 
Paul speaks about this. He was taken up and Jesus directly instructed, appeared to Paul and directly instructed him. Jesus told him what happened on the night in which he was betrayed. Jesus was the eyewitness here. He says in verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You are proclaiming the Lord's death. My Lord died until he comes, that he's coming again. He says, The reason you meet together is for the Lord's Supper. And now in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats and drinks the bread, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Whoa! For this reason. He says, for not judging the body rightly. For not, he says, because he said, he said, uh, um, in verse 28, let a man examine himself. He says, a man must examine himself. And then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You must examine yourself. He wants a time of self-examination. He says, people who don't self-examine themselves, let me tell you what happens. They continue to walk in their sin. For this reason, he says, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Sleep means death of the believer. If you look at how the the New Testament refers to sleep as death of the believer, meaning that they're going to be raised up and be with God. So some are weak and sick and it can even cause death. Sin can cause death. Sin will destroy your marriage. Sin will destroy your friendships. Sin will destroy your careers. Jesus said, sin no more. And then he says, for this reason, many are weak and sick and the number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. So in other words, if we do self-examination, we can escape judgment. If you judge yourself, you don't have to be judged. How's that for a deal? I'd rather deal with it in self-examination than to have to have God deal with it in my life. And then it says, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So that judgment is a discipline. It's not a condemnation like what the world goes through. So in other words, when we come together to eat, so we meet for the Lord's Supper, there's a time of introspection. Why? Because sin draws us away from God. As, as, as Roger was talking about in the service today, this beautiful passage in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3. I mean, here's the example of it. Here's the contrast. This is quoted from the book of Psalms right in this epistle, so it just nails it home for the life of the believer. You want to know what we're supposed to follow? Right here. It's right here in the epistles. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The one who desires life to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You want to have good days? You want to have a good life? Watch what you say. Keep your tongue from evil and stop speaking deceit. You tell lies, you're not going to have a good life. Why? Because people know when you're telling a lie. People know it. You think they don't know it, they know it. 
You can read lies on, a pe- on people's faces. I t- I've told you about this before, this study I read, I forget exactly how many people, but they interviewed like, like 20 people, and, and, and these professional interviewers couldn't say anything. They could only watch the interview, and they had to decide, was the person lying or telling the truth? And they were right, I don't know, like, like 18 or 19 times out of 20. But the, the people that, that were professional interviewers that couldn't say anything and were just watching the interview... The interview was in a language that they couldn't even understand. Just by the facial actions, they could tell whether people were lying or not. Just by facial actions. All of us have this ability, but we don't know how to express it because we want to give people the benefit of the doubt. When you lie, people see it. When you are honest, people can see it. Sometimes it's very easy for me to raise money if I have to raise money for a company. If I believe in something, I go, go up there and start talking and people just want to invest. And I'll have guys walk up to me and say, you know, I can tell you're an honest guy. And they just say that and they start putting money down. And so I have to be very careful you know, that, that I don't like to do this publicly anymore. Because it's just too easy. If you're honest, they see it. And he says, you want to have a good life? Speak the truth. In verse 11, he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. You have to turn from evil and do good. You want to have a good life? You turn from evil and you do good. You think this is too basic. This isn't theologically deep enough. Well, stick this in your theology. You do good. You turn away from evil and you do good. It is that simple. You do this and your life will be much better. Jesus said, you keep sinning, something worse than 38 years of sickness is going to befall you. I mean, of all things to say, should have hugged the guy and said, you know, I'm so happy for you and it's great, you know, you're here in the temple, I'm so glad to see it and this is great, you know, you know, come and join me, you'd be one of my... He says, you're all better now. Make sure you don't sin or something worse is going to befall you. Of all things to say to the guy, but this is the warning that he gives to us. Verse 12 For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ear attends to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You want to wake up in the morning and know that God's face is against you? Wake up with the intent of doing evil. Wake up with the intent of harboring evil against another. And not repenting of that thing. And you will see God's face against you. I'll tell you, I don't want that. Just even the thought of God's face being against me makes me shudder. I love having fellowship with God. I don't want to do anything to get my father upset. So I want a time of introspection. I say, Father, forgive me and have mercy on me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of it, for the stern warning of Jesus who said, Sin no more, that nothing worse befall you. Father, I pray for these young people that you would keep them from sin, that they would have open hearts to look at their own hearts and learn how to repent on a regular basis, to learn how to repent, to say, Lord, search my heart and forgive me. Father, that no evil would befall them. Father, that no evil would come and destroy their marriages and get a foothold in their lives, destroy their lives and their careers. Father, have mercy on these young people, I pray. The grace of God be on them. In the name of Jesus. Amen.